0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to go out to see our guests where they are, as opposed to bringing them here at the studios of the Conservative Partnership, where we traditionally record our episodes. And part of the reason we decided to do that is because the destination is is pretty interesting. We're not about to go into just some other nondescript office in Washington, DC. We're actually going to go to an undisclosed location in rural Virginia to go see Dr. Ryan T. Anderson, the new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Foundation. Ryan's been really popular on Twitter these days because he's posting pictures of uh, goats giving birth, um, you know his beautiful property, all the acres of, of pristine greenery and forestry that's around him. And so we figured, why should we make him take a long train ride into DC when we can just go out to him? So in a minute here, we're going to get up and go off to Leesburg. But uh, in uh, before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit more about Ryan's background. Uh, Ryan, in addition to being the new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, was the founding editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute, uh, which is uh, headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey, right next to, to Princeton University there. He's the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Movement, and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. Uh, he's also the co author of Man and Woman, a defense. Uh and Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. Um, he's written in countless publications. He's a fellow at the Catholic University of America, at the University of Dallas. Um, the, 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 the bio for uh, Ryan goes on a mile long. He's an extraordinarily accomplished person, especially considering his age. And I think we're going to have a fantastic conversation when we go out to the farm today. So uh, I guess, should we just go,
1: Nick? Yeah, I mean, I guess we got to drive through DC rush hour, but yeah. let's do All it. Right, let's go.
0: <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ryan.
2: Happy to be with you guys. Thanks for uh, joining me on the front porch here. I know we were very <laughs> excited.
0: We got to take a road trip out here CU, and see you. And I'm pretty sure Nick, as we got further and further away from DC, like came into himself and will now live here at some point. Also,
1: I'm more relaxed than I've been in a long time. Okay? <laughs> like just by virtue of being here, it'll only be yeah. a couple hours, but it'll yeah. be a relaxing. Yeah, trip. We, we
0: are literally hearing ba- a- a- in the background.
1: <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. Well,
2: so the funny story is that's how this. Happened, we were going out to Front Royal on weekends. We were living on Capitol Hill. We had like a row home in an alley. It's like one of the alley houses on Capitol Hill. And every weekend, more or less, we were going out to Front Royal, just, you know, an hour on 66. You're out in the Shenandoah Valley. The, um, uh, 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 oh, what's what's the uh, the river that we would go kayaking in? The um, That is the Shenandoah. So <laughs> it shows you how long it's been. But anyway, so, you know, we would go hiking at Skyline Drive, all that. And at one point, my wife said to me, she's like, you're so much more relaxed and happy when we're out here like why are we like living in the city during the week and then here in the weekend so that's when we started looking um and we got out of dc uh just in time before like the world ended with the pandemic and so this was a great place to kind of like write out uh the pandemic but yes um i'm not surprised if you're more relaxed and yeah, yeah.
0: So rewinding in your uh, journey to to being out here, living out your, your little Benedict option, we always like to ask our guests sort of how they got involved in politics initially and mm, how they mm. got to the point where they are now. You're now the uh, new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. How did you end up there? Yeah. So um, how much time do we have? I mean, we, we can go back as far. As, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so so
2: the I mean, the sh- in the, the beginning shortest... there was nothing. <laughs> right. I mean, the shortest answer would be. Um, somewhat by default. And what I mean, there's a Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson says, you know, the two f- best words in the English language are default. And <laughs> what I mean by that, like, I don't feel like I ever like set out and like chose a vocation of like being a, uh, a think tank scholar or even just like, you know, an ordinary scholar, let alone think tank president. Um, I was an undergrad at Princeton. And uh, while I was there, uh, I guess it was the uh, Tuesday before classes were going to start in September, the attacks of 9-11 happened. And um, that was obviously, for people of my generation, like thinking about the war on terror, just war theory, all of that was a huge issue. But a month before that, people sometimes forget, uh, President Bush had issued his executive order on stem cell research, and in particular, embryonic destructive stem cell research. And actually at that time that was the biggest issue. Uh, You know, this was like an endlessly debated question about bioethics and sanctity of life. And then two years after that, uh, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court redefined marriage in Massachusetts, which was the first time anywhere in the US marriage had been redefined. Um, So within my time as an undergraduate, like three this like, you know, vitally important issues. Questions about life, questions about marriage, questions about, you know, justice uh, and peace are like thrown like front and center in the national conversation. And, um, you know, I had gone to Princeton uh, to major in music uh, thinking that, you know, the nature of a Princeton education is that you take a minority of your classes inside of your uh, home discipline. The majority are, you know, liberal arts stuff. So you're taking history and science and math and um, all sorts of things, right? Um, and so I was there, and, and the music uh, degree uh, at Princeton, it's not performance. It's like music history, music theory, music composition, all that good stuff. And so um, my thought was I would major in music, uh, get a well-rounded liberal arts education, and then like I would teach high school and coach sports and like be a you know, music teacher on the weekends. Like That was the path I was going.
1: Is that why you have like all the marimbas I and do, xylophones yes, inside? Yes, so uh,
2: we do have... At, so right on the other side of that window, you can see part of the marimba there, but we have... Uh, that marimba, a vibraphone, a hammered dulcimer, and a piano. In this I think I've room. heard of two
0: of those instruments. <laughs> so a
2: marimba is like a giant xylophone. A vibraphone is like a metallic uh, xylophone. A hammered dulcimer—it's almost like a—I um, don't even know how to describe it. I'll show it to you before, <laughs> you before you guys have to take off. And then a piano. I imagine that's one of the ones yeah. that you. Familiar with. Yeah, the and then xylophone. we have, we have like, um, we have. Uh, a drum set up in the attic. We have an electronic drum set that's hidden from my son. We have... Anyway, so yes, that's where the music instruments come from. Um, anyway, so it just put me on a different trajectory. Uh, and the way that it came about by like default was having conversations with classmates about what do you think about the Bush stuff on stem cells? What do you think about the Just War stuff? What do you think about um, gay marriage? And then also um, taking classes in this. Um, I ended up probably doing... Um, uh, you know, roughly close to, maybe close to half of my classes in the philosophy department and the religion department. Uh, and so when it came time to graduate, you know, I had applied for Teach for America. I was accepted. I was going to be doing Teach for America. And then Robbie George was looking for a research assistant. Uh, Robbie's in the uh, politics department at Princeton. I'd never taken a course in that department, hadn't taken any of his courses, but he was looking for a research assistant. And someone said to him, there's a guy graduating in the music department. He's read some of your stuff and he actually agrees with you, which, you know, I'm there aren't all that. You know, Robbie has lots of students. There aren't all that many who actually agree with him. Um, and so I ended up I spent the next two years as his research assistant. Then I went to First Things magazine um, for two years. Ended up being the last two years of Father Richard John Newhouse's life. Like we didn't know at the time. Um, so I went there. I kind of view that as two unofficial master's degree program. Like I did a two-year master's with Robbie on like natural law and then a two-year's master's with Father Newhouse on kind of like political theology. And then I was ready to actually get a PhD in political philosophy. So I um, went to Notre Dame that August um, uh, and started the PhD program in political philosophy, came back to visit Father Newhouse in December. He was pretty ill. He had gotten cancer around like September, I think it was probably October was when he realized it was a serious illness. November, I went to the hospital. He passed away early January. Um, so that's, that's how I would explain like how I got here was mm-hmm. um, certain historical things happened while I was an undergraduate, it piqued my interest, took a lot of courses, you know, on things related to it. I remember Thursday morning uh, after the 9-11 attacks was uh, the day one of my course on Christian ethics in modern society. By a first-year professor at Princeton, Eric Gregory, uh, who had just come, um, he had finished. Actually, he was still writing his dissertation. You know, uh, 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 he did his PhD at Yale. He's the new guy, and he has to lecture to a room full of all these undergraduates, like two days after
0: 9/11. And it was just a wonderful course, uh, and it's like stuck with me ever since. And yeah. And so after you finished your PhD, how did you end up uh, in the decisively less, um, you know? Erudite and well-read world of politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so,
2: so actually, it's, it's before I finish um, the dissertation. So I'm ABD, all but dissertation. Um, the Notre Dame coursework, you just kind of like read through all the great books. It's from like you know Thucydides through Nietzsche. You take courses in all the different time periods, all like the, the big thinkers. Your comprehensive exams, or you're, you're going to be tested in all of those uh, uh, important work, work uh, uh, works. And so. Um, In the meantime, I had written a law review article on marriage, uh, you know, with Sharif Gergis and Robbie George titled, What is Marriage? Um, And uh, my dissertation was going to be on something totally different because from my perspective, like um, natural law thinkers had done a lot of work on killing, um, bioethics, uh, assisted suicide, just war theory, a lot of work on sex, um, you know, gay marriage debates, contraception debates, um, just, you know, all the... And they hadn't done as much on economics. Uh, and so I was uh, doing my dissertation on like, how would a natural law thinker approach questions of property rights, both what justifies property rights, but also what limits property rights? How do we think about social justice, not in a like social justice warrior context, but like the way that like Father Luigi Taparelli originally coined the phrase back in like the 1840s, like there's a history to this term. Um, so I anyway, mean, that's what I was writing my dissertation on. And uh, Heritage wanted someone to do work one, a conservative approach to ethics or or sorry, to economics, right? A conservative approach to integrating ethics and economics. Um, So while I was ABD working dissertation nights and weekends, that's when I started a one year kind of like visiting position at Heritage. And that's when Obama evolved on gay marriage. That is when the Supreme Court granted cert on the first marriage cases, Prop 8 and the Doma case. And that's when they were like, you now have a book coming out on gay marriage. In the meantime, Sharif, Robbie, and I had taken that law review article and, you know, expanded it, replied to all the objections. It was coming out from encounter books. What is marriage, man and woman, a defense. Um, And they were like, why don't you stay on for a second year and do some of this stuff uh, for us? And then that ended up becoming a nine year uh, position at heritage where I more or less did like all of the um, social issues that people are so, Unwilling to talk about. It. So the marriage debate, um, I mentioned Encounter did the What is Marriage book. They then did my When Harry Became Sally book, the book you can't buy at Amazon <laughs> any longer. So the marriage debate, the transgender stuff, the religious liberty stuff. Uh, I think some of the, you know, actually like just like substantive, like best work I did was actually on assisted suicide. There's just one very long 20 some page report I did explaining why. Um, government should not allow physicians to kill their patients, right? Because there was, you know, fear here that, you know, the libertarian argument might prevail, that if person A wants to die and person B wants to kill them, then let's just have a free market exchange between doctor and patient, right? And so it was important to me to make sure that heritage came down on the right side of, of, of that debate. Um, and so anyway, so nine wonderful years uh, there, working on life, marriage, religious liberty, gender identity stuff. And then, um, I don't know, probably, I don't know how many months ago, but um, Ed Whalen reached out to me looking to uh, pass the baton at EPBC. Uh He's staying on, he is staying on as a senior fellow. He's working on all of his court stuff, but he had been president for 17 years, and that's a very long um, time for such a demanding job. And um, he wanted to, you know, pass the baton to someone else and like do a generational um, uh, uh, change. And so, February 1st was my first day at EPBC. You know, we're filming this on May 4th. So it's been a little over uh, three months um, and it's been it's been very busy. Uh, well, you but in a good way, <laughs> you,
0: you haven't exactly gotten to take, uh, you know, a nice sabbatical from public life to settle in at your job. <laughs> you have been embroiled in a controversy that is in some ways completely expected given the moment we live in, but I'm sure uh, not ideal for you as you were settling in, which is Uh, the controversy around your your book, uh, When Harry Met Sally. A, what is that book? Uh, What was the impetus for writing it? And and B, what has happened now?
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean, the book came out, uh, I guess it was March of 2018. Um, And, you know, Amazon gladly sold it for three years after the fact. And um, the New York Times ran two different hit pieces on it within a year. The Washington Post ran a hit piece. Um, The Washington Post eventually walked theirs back. Um, which was because, you know, we just more or less like called them out and we showed them that what they said was just factually incorrect. And um, because it wasn't an op-ed, there were, the, the two hit pieces from The Times are in op-eds. And they were like, well, the, you know, opinion journalists can say whatever they want to say. In the, in the Post context, it was like this was a news reporter who had just hadn't read the book uh, and was going off of a hit piece that uh, someone yeah, at had the a human rights done. campaign press yeah, release. So, you know, <laughs> so anyway, so um, what the book is about is it's responding to Uh, what at that point, I think there had been like a dozen different news uh, stories talking about the transgender moment. And there were cover stories of Time Magazine saying this is the transgender moment. I was like, all right, if this is the transgender moment, like, well, how should we, one, understand it and then two, respond to it. And so it looks at the philosophy, um, the biology, the psychology, the psychiatry, like all the various, it's an interdisciplinary approach to how do we think about the underlying questions of human nature, how do we think about some of the scientific questions, some of the medical questions, and then also the legal policy cultural uh, questions. You know, what does it mean to be a boy and a girl from a medical scientific perspective, but also what does it mean from like a cultural uh, um, perspective? You know, the men are from Mars, women from Venus thing can go too far in one direction, and then like an androgyny thing can go too far in the other direction. Aristotle teaches us virtues, choose the mean between two extremes. Like how do we uh, think about this? Um, so, uh, it flows out of, you know, earlier work that I had done based upon um, marriage because to my mind, like one of the ways in which our sexual embodiment matters most is precisely for our ability to unite as one flesh as husband and wife. So it wasn't surprising to me at all that as soon as LGBT activists had successfully redefined marriage, they pivoted from the LGB to the T. Uh, and you saw this in the, the last couple of months of the Obama administration. That was when they issued all their transgender uh, dear colleague letters and executive orders, right? It wasn't for the first seven and a half years. It was that last uh, uh, six months that all of this started happening. All right, um, Amazon sells the books for three years when President Trump is president, when Attorney General Bill Barr is the AG, when Senator Josh Hawley is on the majority and on a committee, right? And then as soon as none of those people have any uh, political or legal uh, power, and the weekend before the House of Representatives is set to vote on uh, the so-called Equality Act, which would elevate sexual orientation and gender identity to a protected class in the Civil Rights Act while expanding the number of institutions who would be regulated by the Civil Rights Act, while also eliminating uh, any Religious Freedom Restoration Act protections from the Civil Rights Act. Right. So while they're doing all of that, and I'm you know, one of the more outspoken critics of this bill, Amazon erases the book. Uh, and you're right, like it's, you know, I didn't get to take any like sabbatical or respite because like that happens the first month. Uh, I think it's like the end of February uh, when all this happens. Um, and so for the next, you know, two months after that, it's, um, you know, we've been trying to get Amazon to reconsider. You know, we went through the formal appeals process. Um, you know, friends of mine who are in elected office have uh, asked them to reconsider. You know, there was a letter that went out um, from, I think it was Rubio, Lee, Holly, and Oh, I forget who the fourth senator was. There was a letter that went out from the Republican Study Committee in the House. Like, you know, there was a letter that went out from the Indiana attorney general, like trying to get information as to what led to this, uh, trying to get Amazon to reconsider. And so far they refuse. Um, and so if and when the next shoe will drop, you know, there's, I'm still having conversations uh, with people about what the next kind of uh, um, legal option is
1: so what is your response to conservatives that would say that uh big tech is is not a big deal that they're right, getting right. your your book removed from amazon's store is not a big deal what would you say to them
0: it's their speech right after all
2: well, i mean look all of our rights all of our liberties have limits right and, and, and so this is why it was actually like, i think this, this happened on a sunday afternoon and then like you know on monday i s- sat down and wrote an essay for first things and they had it up on their website by like you know tuesday morning And it was easy to write because like this all flows out of the dissertation research, that the way that natural law thinkers think about property rights and markets and regulations is rather different than the way that natural rights uh, thinkers think about this. Like, you know, what's foundational? If it's like a Lockean liberalism of natural rights, uh, you might arrive at one conclusion. If it's a more Aristotelian, Thomistic approach of natural law, you're going to arrive at a difference. Because like one is, you know, what's foundational? It's going to be like, human nature, the fulfillment of our human nature, and then rights are a conclusion. And so you're going to have a way that you justify rights, but then you also have to limit rights based upon the demands of justice and the common good, yada, yada, yada. The other way is you start with natural rights, and then you you know, reason towards your conclusions. And so I think part of the problem here is that for many uh, conservatives, the way they think about uh, these sorts of political issues is that they start with rights. Um, 30 years ago, Marion Glendon, law professor at Harvard, wrote an excellent book titled Rights Talk. Uh, subtitle with something like the diminishment of our public discourse because you know, everything can't be rights talk. We have to talk about institutions. Uh, we have to talk about um, nature. We have to talk about goods, common good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so why should conservatives care about this? Is that if you have um, non-governmental institutions that can actually like impact human flourishing and human freedom even more extensively in certain respects than governmental institutions mm. could? And you care about it when the governmental institutions are impacting this. Why would you not care about it if it's a non-governmental institution? Like what we want is to create a culture, a society uh, where human beings can flourish. uh, And that means we're going to need to have certain governmental policies, regulations, laws that will, on the one hand, possibly limit government itself. Right. So like sometimes you, you say you need to empower government to do certain things. You also have to limit government from overstepping its boundaries, but then simultaneously you need to have government to be able to empower civil society and private enterprise to do certain things, but also in various ways limit their abilities to do certain things. And so, you know, we mentioned the Equality Act earlier. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 limited the power of racist business owners to run their businesses in accordance with their racist beliefs. And it was entirely justified uh, that you had uh, kind of like localized monopolies and even extended uh, uh, market forces that were, um, aligned against racial equality. And so it was, uh, blocking, uh, African Americans from attending elite universities and schools, from working at certain professions, from living in certain neighborhoods. And it was, uh, systemic and systematic, uh, enough that there was a, you know, a justified government response to, uh, uh, regulate the market in a certain way to eliminate racial discrimination. Um, That's the kind of um, public accommodations and then employment, housing, all the different titles of of the Civil Rights Act. But that's one way of thinking about this, right? You can think of this through public accommodations or uh, non-discrimination law. Um, Justice Thomas has said we could also think about this as common carrier law, public utility law. Um, Other people have said, you know, limited public forum where even sometimes a private entity could be understood as what would be a public, limited public forum. Um, and then antitrust and monopoly law, right? That, I just gave you four different, you know, um, uh, regulatory frameworks that you know we regularly utilize, in which the government needs to, in various ways, regulate a marketplace in order to make it function better, right? And and when you're even using that phrase, in order to make it function better, you have to have a concept of what does it mean for a market to function well? Like, what's the telos of a market? What's the end? that we are seeking with market exchanges, market interactions, our economic life. And that's just putting you like right back into uh, good talk, common good talk, rather than starting with rights talk. Um, but I think both of those things need to be important. So, so, so like, I mean, I think sometimes people can overstate the importance of rights to the detriment of goods. And sometimes you can overstate um, goods to the detriment of rights. You really need you know, both of those things to be part of that conversation.
0: This conversation reached a flashpoint a couple of years ago when um, David French and Sora Bamari mm-hmm. had a very public conversation about sort of procedure versus good. Uh, what was uh, your thoughts at the time when that discussion happened? In some ways, it seems like it was a, a vindication uh, of, of things you'd been thinking about for a long time. Uh, what were your frustrations and sort of where where do you think the conversation has reached?
2: Yeah, I mean, so, um, I mean, this is... A a hard question to answer because I'm friends with both David and Sirab, um, and I think both of them are wrong in important respects, and both of them are right in uh, important respects. And like you know that that debate, there are lots of things going on there. Like some of it was um, uh, a debate between MAGA and Never Trump. Some of it was a debate between Catholic and Protestant. Some of it was a debate between kind of like Lockean liberalism and Aristotelianism. And a lot of those different threads kind of got tangled, right? And so you have to like, un- like, what is the real? And then some of it was also I just think uh, about uh, temperament and mannerisms, right? Whereas like you know David has a very different temperament than Sarab and um, you know both might be necessary at different times and places, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, without like relitigating all of the, you know, which side of the ledger would you score the. My basic um, takeaway was that um, you need to be thinking about these issues along kind of Aristotelian uh, Thomistic lines. Uh, The conservative movement has shifted too far in the direction of um, liberty as the highest good or the only good, which is simply to say too far in the libertarianism direction. Right? When you add that ism. Uh, to the end there, it's suggesting that liberty is the only political good that matters or it's the highest political good that matters. And what we need is, um, a sounder understanding of like what the political common good is, which would include liberty. Liberty is a, an important, uh, uh, part of that, but it would also include like substantive, um, defenses of things like life, marriage, uh, religion, not just religious liberty, but religion itself, um, Etc. Etc. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, so there, there's the, there, there was an essay that Robbie George and I wrote for Yuval Levin in national affairs titled The Baby in the Bathwater, where we're trying to um, provide a framework on how you could think about this, where um, it would give you both a framework for thinking about the liberties that matter, but also the limits to those liberties, because right? we don't want to throw out certain protections for liberty. Um, but we also wanna be make sure that um, they're not viewed as like absolute and unlimited. George, George Will, um, this is probably like 30 or 40 years ago, and in his book, Statecraft as Soulcraft, you know, so back before he took more of a libertarian turn, he was more of a communitarian, more of an Aristotelian when he wrote Statecraft as Soulcraft. And he, he writes there a section of the book, where he says, you know, the most important four words in politics are up to a point. Um, and so you know, we're the party in favor of Uh, Free speech, up to a point. The party in favor of religious liberty, up to a point. Party in favor of uh, uh, economic freedom, up to a point. And the hard work is really identifying what's the point, each of those points. Like, where is that point? Um, Last thing I'll say is that I think you have to care both about procedures and about substance. Um, That certain procedures actually help us get to better substantive um, outcomes. Uh, and you would need to think about you know which of those procedures do you want to have legal protections for because they actually like you know help channel behavior in a way that better arrives at um, good outcomes. Um,
0: yeah, fusionism was supposed to be the balance of these questions, right? But it seems like you 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 weren't satisfied at least up until maybe more recently with the balance that was struck in that uh, consensus. Um, what was it that, that's bothered you about the, the conservative consensus over the last, say, 20 years or so? And where do you see hope for where that may be changing? Yeah, I mean, so, I, mean I think you can see this um, in, in the way in which, um,
2: you know, social conservatism was kind of like the, um, the, the junior partner to the fusionist project. Battered Wife. I mean, I don't know if i go that far, but junior partner. And what I mean by that is that look at where the center of gravity was uh, in terms of programmatic activities, in terms of um, staffing decisions, in terms of funding uh, decisions, um, and look at some of the fusionist think tanks and just kind of like count up how many scholars do they have working on so-called social issues versus how many working on fiscal issues or foreign policy. Uh, issues. Like, you know, what percentage of the budget for a fusionist institution is going towards like, you know, defending unborn babies or like defending uh, the truth about what marriage is and then creating public policies that would actually promote more people to get married and stay married. Um, and I just think that's what I mean by like, you know, the junior partners that it, it never had as much uh, uh, of full buy in. Um, and I think that obviously uh, is unsustainable. Um, Because I think one of the takeaways um, that, you know, part of the work that I did early on at Heritage on this question is that you don't actually get a uh, free society the way that certain libertarians would like if you don't actually have, like, robust support for civil society, for uh, families, uh, um, for a certain amount of, dare I say it, public morality and virtue, right? I mean, like, um, and and you need both of those things. Um, During the, the gay marriage debates, you know, I would frequently point out, look, if marriage breaks down, um, you're not going to get a freer society. You're going to have various forms of government welfare programs to step in and do what families used to do. And if you redefine marriage and it further dilutes the nature and purpose of marriage, it's going to lead to the further erosion of marriage, right? So the argument wasn't that if you, you know, uh, quote, let gay people get married, it's somehow going to destroy the institution of marriage, that if you further, um, redefine, the nature of marriage away from its essential purpose of uniting man and woman as husband and wife to then be mother and father to their kids, it's gonna be viewed more and more as just about adult companionship. Um, uh, One of my debating co-authors, someone who was a critic and we co-authored a book going back and forth, John Carvino called it your number one person what we're now saying it's your number one people, right, as throuples and other kind of polyamorous. And at the time, you know, five, ten years ago when we pointed out, look, if you get rid of the male-female thing, what's your principled basis for the monogamy thing? The, 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 what's magical at the number two? Everyone's like, oh, slippery slope. You're scaremongering. The slopes were, in fact, slippery. Yeah,
0: well, I mean,
2: <laughs> because it was a logic there. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain logic. If you have a certain vision about marriage in which it's about adult companionship, adult romance, adult uh 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 feelings um then it's no longer about uh generativity right it's no longer about creating the next generation it's no longer about family structure uh and so the more and more that gets uh enshrined both in our culture and our law the more people believe it the more they live it out right and so i don't think it's monocausal. i think like as the culture got worse the law got worse these things are mutually reinforcing i don't like the politics is downstream uh, from culture language uh, because I think it's 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 more like they mutually influence each other. I sometimes use like the um, the image of like uh, a, a tide that goes in and goes out and like there's a shoreline and there's and, and they're both influence like it's not you know uh, downstream or upstream. it's it's uh, uh, bidirectional. I like the water logic as well, convection currents. Is yeah, something good. like that. Um, so anyway, like that that's how I would um, uh, you know think about like it, it, it's not that you know, a wholesale rejection, of what's come before. It's much more of like a titration question, right? We, we want to titrate this right. Or it's like a pendulum question. We had swung too far in a certain direction. Um, and so again, Aristotelian, you want to avoid the extremes, get the Aristotelian mean. And then the, the, the very last thing I will actually say um, is that there's a trap conservatives can fall into in thinking that particular applications of principles are the principles themselves. So that, you know, look, if this is the way that Reagan did it in the 1980s, like that application of a principle to a particular challenge is going to be the solution going forward, you know, uh, uh, forever. Rather than saying, all right, well, what was the underlying principle, the underlying uh, philosophy, and how did it fit that moment's challenge? And now how do I analyze today's challenges, take similar principles and apply it, right? So part of it is like making sure we actually have the right set of principles. And then part of it is distinguishing between uh, applications and principles. And I think that, you know, over the course of the past 40 years or so, probably we simplified our principles more in a libertarian direction. And then we um, uncritically repeated the application of principles as if those were our underlying values uh, um, themselves.
1: So I wanna go back to something you said just, just a minute or two ago, you know, talking specifically about how quickly we've gone from, you know, legalizing gay marriage, like as someone who came of age during this time, right, where we're legalizing gay marriage and now it's these, ex- like, very extreme, you know, uh, trans issues. Yep. Um, there are a lot of conservatives that want to say, oh, we've already lost that battle, stop talking about it, right, you're right. why we lose. Uh, what should our response be to that, to to things that we morally disagree with uh, that may already seem to be with public opinion? How, like how do we? Fight yeah, back? I mean, so
2: I, I mean, like I always go back to that scatter plot. Uh, you know, the, the, after the twenty sixteen election, I remember I tweeted it out like the day that it appeared, uh, and makes libertarians I, very mad. Yeah, and I had yeah. some like snarky comment of like, look, the D.C. consultant uh, think tank class of the, you know, I'm fiscally conservative but socially liberal. That quadrant of that scatter plot was empty and obviously like, these were many of my friends and colleagues and associates you know both at heritage and like across um the conservative movement and i was like look just as a pure electoral reality right if i can't convince you intellectually on the merits of my like philosophical and social science arguments at least from like the self-interest perspective can you realize that the voters you're going after are not where you are um that you know the, for people who aren't familiar with the scatterplot, all of the red dots were north of the equator, which meant socially conservative, and then they were more or less evenly split between the right and the left quadrants, which was the you know, fiscally conservative or fiscally liberal, and the, they really clustered right along that middle uh, uh, dividing line. So it was like you know, solidly socially conservative while more or less moderate on economic issues. Um, which was more or less like what I had been arguing in the dissertation. So there was a certain sense of like, um, uh, not so much like vindication as like, look, when public policy and law corresponds to nature, human nature, moral truths, it will, uh, resonate, it will be popular that you can only struggle against, uh, uh, reality for so long. That's where I think we find ourselves right now in some of the, um, uh, gender identity and transgender issues. People are struggling against reality, uh, the reality of our embodiment as male or female. Uh, and it can only be sustainable uh, for so long. So I think it would be a huge mistake for conservatives um, to give up on this. Um, and, and it's not only a conservative issue. Like Two of the events that I hosted at Heritage that I was like most proud to host in general, but you know, even more importantly to host at Heritage, uh, were events with um, women who were on, you know, self, self-identified self radical leftists, like left side of the political spectrum. They identified as radical feminists and they were against the Equality Act uh, in particular and then against a lot of the uh, transgender ideology, more broadly speaking. Um, and they came, they spoke at Heritage and they said, you know, thank you, Heritage, for doing what no left-leaning institution would do, uh, provide us with a platform. You know, they couldn't get any of the left-leaning institutions to host an event where they could speak about this. And so I think it's a mistake here to think that the only reason you could be against, you know, the high school girls losing uh, a track championship to a boy who identifies as a girl or even more uh, dramatic, like the high school girls who are having double mastectomies because they don't feel comfortable in their bodies thinking this will make them happy. And then five, 10, 15 years later, regretting it. That the only reason you could be against that is because, You're some like right wing nut job, like Bible thumper, blah, blah, blah. Like Mm -hmm. there are lots of people from all walks of life, um, religious, secular, conservative, liberal, political, apolitical, who can say, who can see there's something not quite right uh, going on here. And like that should be part of the coalition that we're building.
1: So I want to drill down on that specifically in under a minute, you know, are we we uh, bad
2: on time? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) I just
1: short answer. Yeah, Yeah. Um, In under a minute, uh, what's your advice to people who are especially young people involved in the movement who are wrongfully being slandered as bigots uh, for supporting scientific truth? What's your advice?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the short advice is to do what pro-lifers did, you know, 40 some years ago Um, Like today it's easy to my mind or it's easier at least to defend um, the abortion issue because we know how to do it. People did their homework. They learned what the truth was about embryology. They learned what the truth was about the various personhood debates. They learned, they educated themselves on some of the bioethics stuff. So then they could speak um, rationally and compassionately when it comes to abortion. We need to do the same thing um, on some of the gender identity questions. Uh, you know, there, there needs to be an education process of learning what the truth is. And then as you get greater facility with, uh, the ideas and the arguments, you have greater facility with expressing them uh, in a way that comes across as genuinely concerned with the welfare of your neighbors, which is like what we're all about anyway, right? So it's not as if like, oh, well, this is just a way of spinning your bigotry. It's like, no, it was never motivated by animosity or hatred or any of the other slurs you hurl at us to begin with. It was always coming from a perspective of
0: what's like actually like
2: genuinely good for someone.
0: hmm how do you assess the successes and failures of the pro-life movement? On one hand, you know, polling has stayed remarkably stable on that issue. It's, it's ostensibly the only one conservatives have won. on. However, the telos of that movement was theoretically to repeal Roe v. Wade, and we seem just as far away from that happening today as we did 40 years ago. Where, where did the abortion movement go right and wrong?
2: Yeah, so I, I don't know if I would agree that we're as far away today as we were Um, 40 years ago, I mean, Roe was a seven to two decision. Um, And I think if we're not at five, we're getting close to five. And like, that's the, that's the frustrating thing is it seems like we're always one election away from finally getting to five. Um, That said, Michael New has um, uh, done a lot of number crunching showing that the various state pro life laws that have been passed and upheld by the court uh, in the past decade Um, surpasses all of the pro-life laws from like the previous three decades and has like a concrete impact on saving lives. Um, Like, you know, documentable social scientists uh, can show this. So we're not where we should be. Um, The world in which we should be would be one in which uh, abortion was um, not only unthinkable, but was also um, unlawful. You would not be allowed to kill an unborn child in the womb. Uh, It would be a world in which women are provided with um, support, not just women, but families are provided with support so that, uh, abortion wouldn't be, um, uh, 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 kind of a practical necessity in, in scare quotes. Um, and we're not there yet. Um, I don't know, um, like I'm a Finnis guy, right? So like I, uh, just in general, I like John Finnis, but I, 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 I think, um, the argument that he's recently made in first things, an argument that before that Josh Craddock had made in a, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy argument. An argument before that, You know, one of my colleagues is um, you know, uh, Mary Rice Hassan, her father, Charlie Rice, back when he was a law professor, he had made back in the 1970s, is that, look, on a certain reading of uh, the 14th Amendment, and it doesn't even need to be kind of a um, new methodology, on an originalist reading of the 14th Amendment, the word person includes all human beings. Right? It wasn't you know, doing Lockean personhood or Peter Singer-style personhood. Like the word person in that those contexts meant all human beings and therefore it would apply to um, the on board uh, and that this is how it was used in common law. Right. And so Finnis goes through some of the black zone stuff like I'm I'm there Um, whether or not that's the best um, strategic legal way to get to five votes. I have no idea. Like That's above my pay grade in terms of, um, you know, which legal argument, you know, which state, which circuit court, how do you get there? I don't follow um, those questions closely enough to be able to tell you what the answer is. But I, my general approach is let a thousand flowers bloom. And, you know, if some people are going to be defending heartbeat bills and other people are going to be defending fetal pain bills and some people are going to be doing moment of conception some people, 20 weeks, like get as many cases um, getting up there uh, as we can provided like I mean, here, here would be the terrible outcome that you got a bad ruling. Right. I mean, they need to be cases that you're, fairly confident you're going to win, um, so that we keep uh, um, uh, uh, moving in the right direction. Uh, I think it would be a huge setback if you went up uh, with an argument that then you know, actually backfired. Uh, and part of that's also going to be like, how do we think about which, um, which people should be nominated to the courts? Right? How, do, how do we think about um, you know, who's going to be understanding uh, the Constitution in an appropriate way uh, to arrive at you know, just outcomes?
0: One of the ways I think uh, at least part of this political realignment that's happening on the right can be summed up is social conservatives beginning to assert their right to have a say in public policy in domains that are not just abortion, religious liberty, gay marriage. Right. What are some of those issues that, given the opportunity, you want to see social conservatives having more of a say on um, in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see what a
2: conservative economic policy agenda uh, looks like This is something when David Azarad and I were at Heritage, we would often talk about, you know, w- what is the distinction between a libertarian economic policy and a conservative economic policy. And we were bemoaning the fact that like we didn't have, you know, um, enough kind of like clear uh, examples to illustrate yeah. this. And both of us are philosophers. Like so David and I both have uh, political philosophy PhDs. And it's so, like we, we, we could explain like what's wrong with the underlying worldview, like what's, where the principles are going wrong. But we didn't have like the number crunching skill set to then operationalize that and actually like put meat on the bones. You didn't have your Oren
0: Cass yet. Not yet, right? <laughs> and so some of
2: this is now happening. I mean, and, and, and you see this. I think, um, I think uh, Rubio's team is doing a lot of good work there. I mean, one of my, uh, you know, groomsmen, Mike Needham, uh, you know, he was running Heritage Action when I um, started at Heritage. We became like good friends. Uh, he's now Rubio's chief of staff. And I think you can see a change from like the Rubio of a decade ago and the Rubio of today. And, you know, obviously a lot of that has to do with the Senator himself, but I think some of that has to do with his staff, um, both, you know, Mike and then the people Mike's hired. Uh, I think you see something similar even with Romney. Uh, and what I mean by that is like the Romney who ran as a quote, severe conservative who talked about makers and takers and the 47%, you know, up until, um, Maybe two weeks ago, he had introduced the most generous, like, you know, pro-family uh, tax policy, and I think now Josh Hawley has outdone, you know, Romney in the in the two weeks since then. I haven't had enough time to like dig into the weeds of this. I mean, part of the problem of now being the president of an institution is you don't have the time that you used to have to actually like sit down and like read legislative language and like wrestle with the particularities. But I think the the, the bright side here is you now have a Rubio Lee bill and a Romney bill. And a Hawley bill that all go significantly further um, than the Republican Party had ever really been willing to do in the past. Now, obviously, like, this is not, to my mind, something new. Like people like uh, Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam, they've been talking about this since I was, you know, an assistant editor at First Things. I remember, you know, I first met uh, Raihan at a book launch party when Grand New Party, uh, Grand, yeah, Grand New Party came out. Um, you know, it was in Brooklyn, some like backyard barbecue thing. Uh, and I reviewed the book, for first Things. Like, th- this um, has been percolating, I think, for uh, a-, a long time. The question is, to my mind, like, are there, this is what I'm excited about some of the, what you're doing, like, will there be people to staff this out? Um, and then how do we navigate the internal um, tensions and dynamics? Like, you know, one of my fears is that um, some of the hostility and some of the um, kind of like, Social media has not been good for these conversations. Um, you know, just by disposition, like that's not kind of um, you know where my center of gravity is. But I think it's going to be important that we, you know we win converts, we build a coalition. Um, not that we have too many like purity tests, where we you know keep dividing and dividing and dividing until we get like our smaller, smaller slice of true conservatism, and you know we don't have a um, uh, uh, a coalition that can actually like put points on the board.
1: So I want to ask you, speaking of social media, a follow-up question yep. for something that you're pretty well-known for on social media, your house and <laughs> your goats, which I am. That's, maybe that's what you've been seeing me walking behind <laughs> you. I've been watching your goats uh, walk back and forth. So I knew Are the sheep there, too? Or yeah.
2: they, they might be in the shade. It's pretty hot.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, pretty hot they out They're underneath there.
2: that tree further down there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, you mentioned a little bit, uh, at the beginning of the episode, you know, how you ended up coming out here. Yep, yep. Um, you know, as someone who I am a recent, uh, Virginia resident. So okay. I moved from DC last week to uh, Delray, which okay, I sure. understand is not nearly this far out, but, uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying nonetheless. Um, so as someone, you know, who's, who's looking to kind of get out of the Metro area, you know, I'm, looking at, like, getting married this year and and, and stuff. Congratulations.
2: I I hope she says yes.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I hope so, too. Um, Can you just, like, give, I guess, me or all of our listeners, you know, uh, (laughs) just a little bit of advice on, like, you know, how you kind of did this, the importance of, you know, community owning property uh, and and, and being out here with your family?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if I'm yet in a place to give that much advice. because, I (laughs) mean, so, like, we're two years into this, and it wasn't really my idea. Um, I grew up in Baltimore City. Right, I was bit by a dog as a kid. I'm afraid of animals. Um, this was my wife's idea, and it, was
1: you, it wouldn't, was... you wouldn't know that you're afraid from animals by the goat birthing videos <laughs> on
2: Twitter, by the way. Like... Well, I love watching the thing. I mean, it's, it's ama- it's, it's, it's fa- I mean to be honest, like, I'm fascinated by it because it's so different um, from what I grew up with. And I'm watching, my son will be three in August, my daughter will be one later this year, and I'm just watching how good it is for them. this is where i gladly like when my wife was like we should really you know you're you are so much happier when we're out in front Royal on the weekends we should look for a place the reason we ended up here is that there's a marked train station like five minutes that way we're Mm -hmm. on the virginia side of the potomac river but i have a five minute drive i could you know back before covid drive across get on the uh train and it was like a two-hour because it's a commuter train a little slower but two-hour ride into union station um that's how we ended up here. We were looking for a place where I could actually work during the commute because it's you know four-hour round-trip commute. Something a big part of your day. You want to get work done there. Um, the way it happened was she grew up on a farm uh, in about an hour and a half southwest of Chicago. She was raised, uh, as a child, raising chickens, raising goats. Um, her dad uh, um, is a consultant for like pig farms, so he helps people manage mm-hmm. pig farms. One of her sisters is like running a pig farm. One of her other sisters... Uh, shoots uh, feral pigs from a helicopter for, I think it's like either the US, I forget which branch of, you know, bureaucracy it is, but you know, she, she, there are these wild pigs that are destroying cropland and like she's, it's like they're animal people. Um, And like they get this, uh, whenever I would visit for like holidays, I'm like, this is, it's wonderful, but it's totally foreign to me. Uh, The one thing I'm good at is like taking care of ground. Uh, mm-hmm. Grass, snow, leaves, because that's how I paid for my college tuition. I ran a little lawn business. So we moved out here. Um, what I, I don't know if I had advice, but I would say the fruits of it, I, I see at least two things that are really, really uh, helpful um, for raising kids. Um, one is that um, there are household activities. Uh, and I use household intentionally. It, it's something I had learned from um, uh, John Cuddeback, a professor of philosophy at Christendom College. And, you know, he's building off of Aristotle saying that, you know, you don't just want to have kind of like the nuclear family as like an isolated atom. You want to have a, a, a household, which could be intergenerational, but you want things going on uh, at the house. So it's not just kind of like a hotel where we all like do our disparate things during the day. We come back at night and we check into the front desk. We go to our rooms, we sleep. And then the next day we go out that you want there to actually be like some family culture right? You want to have some family activities that you engage in qua family, like projects that you can like do um, together. Um, And I think there's, there's a lot to that. Think about like just like agriculture, horticulture, like cultures cultivate and there's a human culture, there's a family culture Mm -hmm. Uh, and that these things can then um, uh, intersect. So it's good that like we have things nights, weekends, sometimes early mornings that like we're doing uh, as a family. It need not be farming, right? There, There are lots of things like, um, you know, music's going to be a big part of that for us. My, my son loves dancing. I'm not much of a dancer, but he's <laughs> he's getting me to become a dancer. Like, so there's lots of things. I mean, I think family prayer is going to be a big part of family culture. And again, like what you're doing is you're cultivating nature. In this case, you're cultivating human nature. Obviously, like agriculture, horticulture. You're cultivating other aspects. But so that's one. Is that household activities, things that you do as a family. Um, uh, and I had first come across that while I was doing some of the research on the marriage debate and the gender identity debate, because like, part of the argument was that, well, nothing's happening inside of families any longer, right? There's a deracinated mm-hmm. nature of family life. So it's like, what are you guys even arguing about? Like, it's all just kind of
0: like, um, you know, a common like, boarding house. It's not really about family life. Mm-hmm. This, to, the, to the extent that it can be, you know, outsourced, right? With right. these daycare debates these days. J.D. Vance has a
2: great op-ed today with um, Jeanette Erickson, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, precisely on that, Right. And then the second thing was just like, and this is distinctive of like the farm life, like how good it is to my mind uh, for little people in particular to kind of see like the life cycle mm. and like the bounty of God's goodness. We have like over that way, we have wild berries. They're called wine berries. I think they were, um, you know, something that came to Virginia from some, you know, other climate. Someone brought them here and they and they just like grow like weeds like, all over the place. So we don't have to cultivate them. They're just there. And... About a month from now, that whole driveway will be full of all these red berries. And mm. our son loves running there, picking them, eating them. Over here, we have some strawberries and blueberries that we're actually trying uh, to grow. We have some apple trees. We have a fig tree uh, that was my grandfather's. Like, my grandfather was born in Sicily. He came over to the States. Like, he had a little fig tree in his backyard. When he passed away and they were selling the house, my parents took like cuttings of it. They transplanted it. They grew it. It's been growing in their front lawn. Now it's going to be growing here. Like, there's something about like, that cycle and like, participating in it like my son's been helping my wife plant the garden right he puts mm. a seed into the ground he helps her weed and a couple months from now he's going to help her like pluck stuff right harvest stuff um in a very very technological age where we're all on our smartphones and we're in you know, different screens you know your windshield your computer screen and your tv and you know the three different you know, screens that i like to think about like it's good to have some non-screen time Uh, And I think it helps ground people in reality. Um, Again, we're two years into this, so check back in a decade. I might have better advice. (laughs) But I like what I see so far. And, like, I have found that, like, my son has been, like, remarkably gentle and just, like, a good, protective big brother with my daughter. I think partly because of the interactions that he had with like the baby chicks when we got our, you know, when we started doing the chicken coop thing or Mm -hmm. with, you know, I mean, he kisses the goats and the sheep. I think it's crazy. I don't touch them and he's (laughs) kissing them, but I think he's going to be much better adjusted than I am, right? I mean, there's something good about this. Well,
1: and I think that's part of why what you're doing is so countercultural and there's this kind of like fascination with it and why I'm fascinated with it because, you know, now we kind of live, uh, you know, Western culture dictates that we live in this kind of like nomadic you know, uh, just kind of transient, yep. you know, world now where it's it's weird to want to stay in your hometown or to live, um, you know, f- to live like super close to home. Um, so I think it's really important that yep. you're doing that.
0: We, we,
2: we at least, I, I shouldn't necessarily say we, we, I, I intend on dying uh, in, in this house. Uh, I don't know, like, after I'm dead, what my wife's plans will be, <laughs> and I fully expect that I'll be the one. Actuarial, table-wise, I, you know, I'll be the one that passes away first, but like our our thought is like this is our home uh, for the rest of our lives, right? For seeing some mm. you know unexpected thing that would make us change, and that way you do get to plant roots. Like you know we have all sorts. Covid's delayed us, but all sorts of plans like what we want to be doing here in terms of being like a center for community, uh, for other families. You know ways in which like we can you know um, kind of steward. You know we're on a thirty acre property, which was actually cheaper than where we were living in D.C. We moved to a thirty-acre property. And like we saved money, lower mortgage, lower payments. It's, it's so counterintuitive, but it's been great. Um, my parents still live in Baltimore. Baltimore is less than an hour drive from here. They were mm. with us for the first several months of COVID. I have a brother that lives there. He was with us. So like we were able to do hospitality. We were able to do intergenerational families dynamics. Back when you know you really needed that. Like anyway. So I mean, I, I think it is really really. Um, uh, helpful in all of those domains.
1: Yeah. I think the household stuff in particular is very important. There's, and there's definitely like scriptural basis for that too. So actually last night I was doing a Bible study on um, first Timothy five. And, you know, it talks about uh, explicitly that, you know, people who do not take care of or interact with their family, uh, it says that they're worse than unbelievers. Hmm. Like, like, Worse <laughs> right, than unbelievers right, right. for for abandoning their family, and so you know I think that's that's super admirable. You know that you get to spend a ton of time with your family and, and inter- intergenerational time. Um, I got to spend a lot of that with my family growing up, and I know uh, it's one of the you know my most cherished things from growing up. Yeah, I had
2: I don't know it was it was just it was like the week before we got married, I was the commencement speaker at Franciscan University in Steubenville, and you know part of the commencement address I mentioned that like. The, the commandment to honor thy father and mother is not just about like when you're little kids and you need to behave. It was like, actually, as you're graduating here, you and your siblings should start thinking about now, what are you going to do as your mm. parents age? Because like, part of the problem of like Social Security and um, Medicaid and Medicare is that it can foster a mindset of my parents, um, they're the government's business. you know And mm. as they get older, that's what Social Security for. That's what Medicaid and Medicare... Are are for rather than like they're my responsibility. Like part of honoring them as they grow older is like you know working with them and with my siblings to see like one what are their preferences. Like like, do they want to be moving in or not? Like do you have the capacity? But if not, like what are other things you can do uh, to support them to honor them uh, as they grow old? And some of that's going to be geographical. Like who's living where? uh, Who who has the ability to be close to home? And there might be job demands that don't allow that. and so yeah, I mean like we um when we were looking at places, we intentionally wanted a place that should you know either of our parents one day want to be with us, there would be the ability to do that, right? But you also like you don't want to, you know, force something like that. That's yeah.
0: a it's a big interpersonal
2: uh, decision.
0: It's it's one of those things. It was always the, the strangest thing for me, being a naturalized citizen. I I love America, I love Americans, but one of the oddest things about the culture to me was the idea that the parents go to a nursing home or live separately on both sides of it. I think that the obligations of being someone's son or daughter, uh, mean that you take, you care for them in their old age. Like that, that is part of the life cycle. But also on the other side, like why on earth you would not want to have, you know, someone who can take care of the kids so that you can get a date yeah, night out yeah, once a week or yeah. something like that. It just seems on There's every your side. Free of daycare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't need government mandated daycare if you have, you know, a grandparent around.
2: And and, and I don't think that's just because, um, uh, you know, as kind of a um, was the, the, the let, let me cut this real quick. How did you describe? I don't want to misdescribe. Um, was it? Um, what is your nature to America? What, how did you describe it? Naturalized America. Naturalized. Yeah. So, so you're first generation?
0: Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, I was three months old when I moved to the United States. Oh. And so, uh, but I did yeah, that's live... That's why I wasn't... Sh- uh, yeah. Okay. So I did I- live there for my eighth, ninth, and tenth grade as well. So it's really this, like, combination, yeah. you know. Okay.
2: So- I, mean, so, so I don't even think you necessarily need to be, like, a naturalized citizen to see this. I saw this in my childhood. My, um, my grandmother and grandfather and my mom's side of the family both were born in Sicily, um, came over to the United States... And my grandmother died when I was a freshman in high school, and she never knew my name. Uh, she had severe dementia, Alzheimer's. And my grandfather took care of her uh, up until, I think, like three months before he died. Like they lived in a little row home in Baltimore. He had a stroke, uh, if I remember correctly, it was like September. And then he passed away in January. And then after that, because of the just nature of the um, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, And where the other, uh, uh, the children were, like, no one could, um, uh, you know, have my grandmother move in because, like, you needed someone who was really going to be there, like, 24-7. And that's what he had done. And so it was, like, two great witnesses for me. One was just, like, the um, marital love, right? So, like, imagine, you know, having your spouse, like, she sometimes forgot his name. I mean, she would, you know, at the end it can get bad. But then, like, two, like, uh, the nursing home was not, like, what it was like for her when she was at home. Um, And look, sometimes it's necessary. There was, you know, given our family dynamic, there wasn't anything else um, that was plausible. Um, But yeah, like, you know, as much as possible, you know, we would like to, uh, one, have moms and dads take care of each other, husbands and wives as they grow older. And then two, have adult children uh, care for uh, their, you know, elderly mothers and fathers rather than outsourcing it, institutionalizing it. Um, But also recognizing that sometimes that is going to be necessary. I I don't want it to, um, I think conservatives get a bad rap for like being judgmental. And look, there are some circumstances where, um, you know, daycare might be a necessity for uh, families. It might fit best with their vocation. It might be, same thing would be true for um, nursing homes or assisted living facilities. I mean, I I think um, some of the more kind of like retirement communities um, uh, strike me as actually much more appealing precisely because like mom and dad get to be independent but they also have some assistance right um anyway simply to say that I, I think one one um error that conservatives should avoid is being too one size fits all for what quote the good life looks like um i forget where but I, you know i've written somewhere saying there's no such thing as the good life there is, are many different good lives you know as there are saints like to kind of like put it in like catholic terminology <laughs> there are as the many different ways of living. Um, a good life, as there are, um, uh, you know, vocations, uh, and then so the question is really going to be, you know, what does uh, uh, um, the good life look in your circumstances? And it might be different, right? So I also don't think that you know we've been talking about, you know, what it's like being in a rural area. Like I don't think it's impossible to do this in an urban area. Right? There's a part of me that still, you know, I I liked when we were living on Capitol Hill. Like there there's a part of me that enjoys kind of like the urban life we couldn't afford to do it with kids though like we didn't have enough bedroom you know there wouldn't have been space and so for us it was a financial necessity and then once we started doing it i you know i i think it's been great like i love it out here Um, but i don't want to paint with too broad of a brushstroke where it's like you know everyone needs to do it this way or else you're like a bad parent or you're a bad you know adult son or daughter of your elderly parents Like, Like there needs to be a certain um amount of like freedom for discerning vocations within certain limits. I mean, and and this just goes back to the tension that we talked about at the very beginning of of the podcast is that like you want to have like certain liberties that have limits. They're meant to achieve certain goods. And then the up to the point thing, like how you titrate that is, you know, the hard work that needs to be done, both in our personal lives and in kind of
0: legal political stuff. The word the common good gets thrown around a lot in our circles. In as concise a way as you can, <laughs> given that there have been trillions of words probably yes, written yes, 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 yes. on it across time, what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the 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 most concise way of, to think of it as it's the flourishing of a community as a community, the flourishing of a community as a community, uh, and the way to think about a community is that you know any uh, common action uh, is engaged towards uh, uh, that, that that common action forms a community or society. And then it's oriented, it's ordered towards uh, a, a certain common good. Right? You know, what's the purpose? What's the tell us, What's the reason that we engaged in the common action to begin with? Like, this is actually, like, this is how Sharif, Robbie, and I, like, from the very beginning of what is marriage, you know, an- analyze the marital community, right? So what makes the marital community different than other types of communities? What's the common good of the marital community? Um, and then you can apply that to any community, right? So what's the common good of a university community? What's the common good of a business community? What's the common good of the political community? What's the common good of the ecclesial community? And for each of those, you're going to say, all right, what makes this community flourish? Not as a collection of like, you know, atomistic individuals who happen to be, you know, under the umbrella of, you know, church, state, family, business, school, whatever, but members, right? Members of, of the community. So like, how do I flourish? qua, like, parishioner of St. John's in Leesburg? How do I flourish qua, like, uh, father and husband? How do I flourish qua, um, you know, president of a think tank? How do I flourish qua citizen of, you know, Leesburg, of Virginia, of of the United States of America? And, and this is where I think, you know, there's some, you know, interesting stuff that Jerome Hazoni has been doing on, like, you know, how to think about nationalism not in the bad kind of uh, 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 way in which he gets dismissed as, like, you know, this is some, like, you know, reinvention of like European not, uh, uh, nationalism, in which you are going to have totalitarian regimes, but like, no, the nation state, uh, the nation, the city state, different political communities um, are real communities and therefore there are real common goods that are the perfection of that community. So that's all I think about it. And then you apply it like there's this is also where, this is such thing as the good life. I don't think there's any such thing as the common good, you know, apart from kind of like the ultimate transcendent common good being, being God uh, uh, and, and the kingdom of, of heaven, but like There are as many different common goods as there are uh, communities. So you can say, you know, what's the common good of American moment? What's the common good of, you know, this household? What's the common good of this uh, business? What's the common good of this parish? Of this diocese? Of this church? Uh, And they're they're distinct, right? And that's where um, you need some uh, precision. And the last thought I'll say about the political common good is that like it's going to be a common good of common goods. Right? So the political common good. Um, part of what it is is going to be seeing, too, that uh, ecclesial communities achieve their common good, that families achieve their common good, that businesses achieve their common good, that educational schools achieve their common good. And so it's almost as if it's, a, it's an architectonic. This is where you know, Aristotle says politics is an architectonic science, is that it, its distinctive common good is going to be like a nested, like st- um, stacking doll of other uh, common goods, And so how can we as a political community Um, arrange things so that families achieve their end, that businesses achieve their end, that uh, uh, schools achieve their end, that that, that houses of worship, you know, church, mosque, synagogue, achieve um, their end. And that's, to my mind, like this distinctively uh, political uh, common good.
0: Well, I think that's the task that all of us are working on. It's what you're working on at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. It's something we care a lot about at American Moment. Ryan, thank you for inviting us out here. And oh, of course. Thank you for coming on A Moment of Truth. Oh, of course. Thanks
2: for coming and thanks for having me on.
0: Well, I guess we're back in uh, in the swamp. Um, I'm gonna miss being out there on the farm with Ryan.
1: Yeah, I uh, made Ryan an offer he couldn't refuse on his home, and uh, he rejected. So uh, I <laughs> he guess he did I'm, in fact refuse it. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm stuck here for a little while.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I just assume we're gonna lose Nick to the boonies at some point, one way or another. But uh, in in theme with some of the conversation we had with Ryan today, we wanted to talk about some pieces on Canon and a little bit more broadly about the question of big tech. You know, he's obviously reeling from the removal of when Harry became Sally from Amazon and all sorts of other book publishers as well. Um, and it's just it's just another example of why conservatives need to get with the with the moment and realize that at this point, political conservatism is an existential enemy of the biggest tech conglomerates that rule over us and rule over our lives no one has been more entrepreneurial and and willing to put skin in the game in fighting on this issue than one of our own board members here at American Moment, Rachel Bovard. And she has this fantastic piece in the Federalist that you can find on Amcanon called It's Time for Conservatives to Take on Big Tech Tyrants. And here's how. And she goes through a lot of the same options that Ryan did in the episode. You have solutions like antitrust, you have solutions like common carrier laws, anti-discrimination legislation, and so on. But even more than, than the particular of those solutions, it's, it's just absolutely critical that we start thinking uh, not only about the challenges faced by big tech now, but also what are the coming threats facing conservatives. In some ways, I find myself even less interested in the question of big tech than I once was, because I'm now thinking about what's going to happen next. Are they going to come for a conservative's ability to bank? Are they come for their, going to come for their ability to buy a home, uh, their ability to send their kids to public school and so on? Um, it, it it requires attentiveness to realize the moment we find ourselves in. and it seems like the news cycle every day is is more and more evidence of that.
1: Yeah. well, and like not to defend Alex Jones, but oh boy, famous last <laughs> words. Um, but they have like deplatformed some of these people from from making money, right? like i I, I believe like Alex has been deplatformed from basically, everything. And 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 people at the time, you know, said it was like, "Oh, well, he's bad. He says some like abhorrent things, therefore it, many conservatives were saying this. Like, you know, he says many bad things, therefore it's like probably fine that he is banned from like ever making money or providing for his family." Fast forward to, you know, after the election here in 2020, and the sitting president of the United States gets removed from Twitter. And now dissident books you know uh, like ryan mentioned when we were out there you know they've been selling his 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 book for a couple of years um and now that they kind of wield these these you know institutions and these powers they basically mm. just they start tearing it all down and yeah uh, i've kind of been thinking through this a little bit um uh through um you know slippery slope discourse on twitter mm. right like the slopes were in fact slippery yeah they they always are like people say oh that's a slippery slope argument yeah it is and i'm right like <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the way that yeah. that it goes and you know i think one of the please please graduate past
0: you know the high school debating tricks that you were taught
1: yeah yeah it's there are there are far too many uh debate team alumni here in Washington DC i think we can all agree on that society
0: but... has progressed past the need for debate team alumni <laughs> in Washington DC <laughs>
1: um but i i think one of the things that's that's most annoying to me you know from the from the uh libertarians in particular in washington dc who by the way like it's worth mentioning they're funded by these monopolies like they get paid to say these things uh and i truly believe that's why they believe it um but there's a lot of discourse about how there's no like historical precedence for this. Like it's bad. You know, the, 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 the founders, you know, wanted monopolies to just grow like unobstructed. It's simply not true. Like Abraham Lincoln, conservative hero, jailed journalists, like Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, broke up, uh, you know, the, the, the big like railway system. And I, I can't help, but think that this, Kind of like ebbs and flows over time. Um, there's that g- graph that's gone around on Twitter a couple times of like, you know, the the like three big telephone companies, you know, back in like the 40s and 50s, and then they get broken up and they become these like hundred different companies, and then they kind of start to coalesce again around like AT and T and stuff uh, in the early 2000s, and and I think we have to be prepared to wield power against these massive corporations that impact our day-to-day lives, uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they never have before. And one kind of final note on that, you know, it's the, the, the rallying call of these libertarians seems to be liberty. Like it's for liberty and like absolute freedom, maximum freedom for corporations and for people and, 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 and what have you. Uh, and need I remind our libertarian listeners, uh, the founders mentioned. We love you,
0: too, libertarian listeners. No, we don't. No, you don't speak for me. Uh,
1: but the 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 founders, you know, by and large, mention one word more than liberty: virtue. Um, and 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 you know, it's a large part of why uh, you know virtue is one of our core values at American Moment. But we also have uh, several principles that have the word virtue in them, uh, because we believe you know the virtue of the American people and and you know the 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 common good. Um, you know, are 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 more important than the freedom to have a gigantic monopoly,
0: right? And uh, and I think there's sort of two angles to this, right? There's the there's the question of monopolies, qual monopolies, right? Should these companies be this big? Should they exercise this much power over the market, et cetera, et cetera? And I think the answer to that is no. And so we should shatter them into a trillion pieces, absolutely. There's also the specific question of of what needs to be done when it relates to conservative censorship and mm-hmm. the marginalization of conservatives in the public square by virtue of these private companies that are wholly taken over by woke corporations. And to deal with that, we probably need to come up with new laws, because I'm not entirely convinced that a trillion uh, you know, or a hundred smaller Facebooks wouldn't come to a lot of the same decisions. Well, because
1: they'd still be governed by the same people, right. the same people who hate us and our ideology. And,
0: and just on that, like right, right now, we're recording this um, uh, on the day when President Trump's appeal to be reinstated to Facebook was rejected by the oversight board of Facebook, hmm. which first of all, like I think less than a quarter of which is actually American. And so you know, libertarians, uh, they, you guys theoretically oppose global government, right? Like We exist under global government right now. A bunch of NGO spooks tempered by one Cato Institute VP are essentially making decisions over whether the former leader of the free world is allowed to speak or not. That, that sounds a lot like government. That sounds like uh, a lot like government when they're able to determine whether someone has access to an audience of, I think, like 4 billion people or something mm-hmm. nuts like that are on Facebook. And it,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, I, I almost want to say that it's worse than like just a government. Like, it's a cartel. Mm-hmm. It's like, do what we ask or we like bust your yeah. kneecaps. You, you, can,
0: you can't vote to, you know, remove that Facebook board. Yeah. They are literally an appointed clerisy of the global elite, the people who lead the most important, quote-unquote, uh, non-profit organizations and paragovernmental entities in the world. They're all the most annoying sorts of people who speak at TED Talks. Um, did you elect to be governed by them? I certainly didn't. Did
1: you elect to be governed by TED Talks? <laughs> yeah. No, sir. Oh, so, man.
0: Uh, there's a reason one of our priorities is that the power of multinational corporations must be curtailed. It's something we're thinking about and working on every day here at American Moment. We hope you listeners will as well. Uh, make sure to uh, like and subscribe and follow us on all of our social media feeds and, and, and our channels in order to, to keep up with everything that we're doing on those topics. And uh, we hope to see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.